This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Let me take you on a journey today, a journey deep down into the nanocosmos that is our cells, which you see here behind me, in a beautiful watercolor rendering by an artist-scientist. And you can immediately appreciate, when you look at this rendering, that it is extremely complex. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of proteins and vesicles packed very tightly together in a very, very small space. And this poses an enormous problem to us scientists when we want to understand how the cell is working and how it is managing all the thousands, the millions of chemical reactions and signaling processes which are going on in all of your trillions of cells simultaneously to keep us alive and to make us think and move and feel. And this rendering here is one of a very particular cell, which is very interesting to me personally, because this cell is a neuron, and more particularly, a very interesting part of a neuron called a synapse. And I want to tell you a little bit more about those before I tell you how we scientists can figure out ways of separating all these different elements inside the cell to understand it better. So, neurons, as you might have heard before, are the building blocks of our brains. Our brain is constructed of billions of these neurons. And the neurons, in turn, are constructed of synapses, which you can see here. These are very easily built. We have, on the one side, a sending neuron, which wants to transmit a signal. And on the other side, we have a receiving neuron, which wants to take the signal and further process it. And the signal is transmitted by the release of neurotransmitter from these tiny organelles here, the synaptic vesicles. And if we go even deeper down, we can see that, in turn, the synapse is built of even tinier building blocks. And these are the proteins. You can see here behind me, again, the rendering of a synapse. This is a rendering based on our best current understanding of how the synapse might look like. And each of these little dots here is a protein. And there's more than 300,000 of these proteins shown in this little synapse, which is less than a micrometer in diameter. So how can the cell function by having to constrict all its processes in this very tiny space? This is the question which I really would like to understand. And again, the trouble that we have is, as you can see in this model, everything is very tightly packed together. There's almost no empty space if we put the proteins into this model. So we need to be able to see these individual proteins and to see how they relate to each other if we want to understand the machinery, which is the synapse. We can know the parts, but before we figure out where these parts are and how they relate to each other, we will not be able to understand this machinery. So, that will pose a problem. Because if we cannot see the machinery that is making up the synapse, how will we ever understand it? Seeing is believing, and seeing is also understanding. So, the problem that we face if we want to look at, into the synapse is a problem of resolution. You can see a very low-resolution picture behind me here. It is very blurry. You cannot even figure out what might be photographed here. So let's zoom into this picture and see if that helps any, because this is what we are doing in microscopy, ultimately. We are zooming in, we are magnifying 
the biological sample that is before us to better understand it. But if we do this and we do not change the resolution, there is no gain in information. You see, it's bigger now. We have zoomed in, but it's still blurry. We still don't understand what is going on here. So what we actually want, instead of more magnification, is better resolution. So now I increase the resolution of this picture. And suddenly you can see different elements which you haven't seen before. There's a building in this picture. And within this building, there is windows. These windows at the low resolution could not be separated. We could not distinguish them as individual features of this picture. And this is what resolution is. The smallest distance at which we can still distinguish two elements and tell them apart. And as we increase the resolution even further, you can see that now we can distinguish more details. For example, that this guy here is holding up three fingers. And you might even recognize this guy now, which is me, standing here before you right now. And as we go further and increase the resolution one more step, we can now tell that there's actually things written on the sign here. This is what we want in microscopy as well. The best possible resolution to be able to distinguish the smallest possible features. And in microscopy, that is a particular problem. Because in the macroscopic world, which is photographed here, I just took a picture that was at a very high resolution and I blurred it out for you to visualize the problem we are dealing with. In microscopy, however, there is a very hard physical limit imposed on us by the photophysics of light, which determines a resolution which we can usually not go below. So before I tell you how we get around this problem, I will tell you a little bit more about the photophysics of light so you understand what we are dealing with. In light microscopy, we are quite often using fluorophores. These are little molecules which can light up, emit light, and we can detect the fluorophores and the structures like proteins that are labeled by these fluorophores. So here we have one of those fluorophores, this little lamp here. It is at the moment switched off. It is in an inactive low energy state. This is the low energy. So now we want to raise it up by putting light of a certain wavelength on it, and this will bring the fluorophore into a higher energy state. From this higher energy state, it spontaneously decays down to a lower energy level, and then at some point it spontaneously emits a photon from this fluorophore and it lights up. So this is what we then can finally detect in our microscope. But as you can see, what lights up here is not a very focused dot. It is actually more like a blurred out disk, some blurred out shape where we cannot immediately tell is this fluorophore located somewhere in this disk at the center, somewhere close to the center. We don't actually precisely know. If it's only one fluorophore, that's still okay. Most of the time we can just assume that the fluorophore will be at the center of this blurred out disk. The problem arises when we deal with more than one fluorophore and more than one fluorophore close to each other. So the problem is very difficult to understand ultimately on an intuitive level. But as you may know, light behaves like a wave. It's not just a tiny particle that is moving around, but it moves in a wave-like fashion. This is very similar actually to water waves or to sound waves. And here you see a picture of a harbor in Alexandria where a linear wavefront is coming in from the ocean. Ocean waves are hitting the harbor walls and there's a little tiny opening here through which the waves can progress. 
So what you might expect is that this big, broad wavefront just turns into a smaller, tinier, more focused wavefront. But that is not what is actually happening. Instead of this tiny, focused, linear wavefront, we now get this blurring out. We get a circular wavefront, which originates from the opening that the waves are hitting. This is exactly the same phenomenon that happens when light waves encounter an objective in microscopy, when they are going through the lenses, when they are going through the opening of the objective. So no matter how tightly we would like to focus our light, we will always have this blurring effect. So let's go back to the fluorophore. If we have one, as I mentioned, it's fine. But now, if we have a second one, how far does it need to be away from the first one so that we can still see it as a separate object? And this is what this guy here determined, Ernst Appel. He, in the 1800s, figured out a formula which became so important to microscopy that it even got its own monument here in front of university in Germany. And this formula tells us that objects need to be usually at least 250 nanometers apart so we can resolve them separately in light microscopy. And this is based basically only on the wavelengths of the light that we are using. So now if you have an object which is 250 nanometers apart from the first one, it lights up. That's great. They are very far apart. We can separate them. But what happens if we move the two objects closer together now? You can see they are starting to overlap. We can no longer tell in this blurred out spot here, is it one fluorophore, is it two fluorophores, it is, is it more than three or four, or how many fluorophores there might be. And we can't really pinpoint their locations anymore. We cannot tell what the relationship of these objects is towards each other. So this is the problem of resolution that we face. And there have, of course, been many efforts over the years to overcome this problem. One of them is electron microscopy. In electron microscopy, you essentially just make these blurred out little disks smaller. As I mentioned to you, it depends a lot on the wavelengths of the particle which we are using for imaging. And with electrons, we can just go to a shorter wavelength and achieve a better resolution. This results in a very crisp image, as you can see here. You have a synapse again here, and you can see the individual little tiny synaptic vesicles inside the synapse. That is great. But you also notice that we lost one important element, which is color. We can no longer really tell apart different elements inside the synapse. We can see the overall structure, but we can't tell is protein A or protein B here or there, and how do they relate to each other, because we cannot label them. So some other people went to go back to light microscopy and try to figure out ways there using fluorescence to get around the resolution problem. And here, the main approach is to just shut off selectively some of the fluorophores and have others light up. So one is off now, the other is on, which means if we know that only one is on, we can say, okay, it must be at the center of this disk. So then we switch on the other one and switch off the first one, and we again can pinpoint the location, and we can be quite happy with that because we can tell them apart. This is done in storm microscopy and in stat microscopy. And if we use stat microscopy, for example, to look again at a synapse, we can see now there is these red little dots, which are quite crisp. They are at high resolution, and they're actually showing you synaptic vesicles again. But you also see there's other colors, a green, blue, which are more blurred out. 
First of all, it's great that we have the color back now because we can tell apart different elements of the sinus. But not all of them will be at the same high resolution. The reason for this is that it's actually very difficult, very expensive, and often also very computation-intensive to build microscopes that can utilize light of different wavelengths in the same way to increase the resolution. So we are still limited by having only one or only few of several imaging channels at high resolution. So this was very much the situation which I had to deal with during my PhD, studying synapses. Until one day, my PI came to me and he just threw this beautiful paper on my desk. And he came to me and he said, well, Sven, um, this paper came out today, printed it for you, it's very interesting, it might help us deal with the issues of resolution better. And I was, of course, very interested in that. So I asked him, what does it do? I mean, how does this work? What can you tell me about it? And he tells me, well, it's called expansion microscopy. Okay, interesting, never heard of that. And you know how it works is the following way. You take a diaper, a baby diaper. And at this point, I'm like, what? <laughs> Where's this going? What are you doing with the baby diaper? I think we are doing microscopy here, no? But it actually makes sense. Let me take you through it. Inside the baby diaper, there is something very interesting. And to look at that, let's do a little experiment. We have the baby diaper here and we cut it open. And now, inside the baby diaper, we will find an interesting little granulate. And if we take that, just put it in the beaker here and add water, it will start to expand. Just like diapers usually expand at some point when you put them on a baby. I recommend if you want to do this experiment at home, do it with a fresh diaper. But if you do it, you will see if you add water to this granulate, it will expand. It will get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as it expands, the different elements inside will separate. So if we could achieve expansion of a cell instead of just the gel itself, maybe this could become useful for us. Here you can see the effect again. Without water, with water. Very clear difference. So, if we now achieve putting this gel on a cell and separate the fluorophores, as you can see here, they will suddenly become distinguishable again. So we get around the resolution problem by just increasing the distance between the fluorophores. This is an incredibly elegant and simple solution to the resolution problem. It's actually so simple if I pose this question, this problem of resolution during outreach events to school children of eight or 10 years, the immediate reaction is, well, if they are too close together, then just separate them, just pull them apart and that should get you where you want to be, right? So it is a very simple approach in principle. Of course, in practice, it takes some effort to get there. So let me walk you through how expansion microscopy actually works in the lab. First of all, we start out with our sample. We have our protein number one, and over here our protein number two. And we want to label them first of all, because otherwise we cannot see them. This is commonly done just using a standard immunostaining. Many of you have probably done that at least once during your undergrad studies. And what the immunolabeling does is it puts a fluorophore here in green and in magenta on the proteins of interest. Again, these two fluorophores 
are very close together, so we can't really tell them apart properly in microscopy. Okay, what's the next step? Next, we perform something called anchoring. In anchoring, we just attach literally a chemical anchor to the sample, which is shown here in blue. What the chemical anchor will do is provide a direct connection between the sample and the gel. So after the gel expands, the sample will go wherever the gel is going. And this will help us maintain the integrity of the sample during expansion. So the next step, we just pour a liquid of different monomers on the sample. These monomers will then polymerize into a gel matrix, which you can see now. And the gel matrix is linked to the sample via the anchoring reagent. Now we could, in principle, expand our sample and see what happens. But before we do so, we should first homogenize it. The big problem otherwise would be that there are different structures in the cell which are differently dense. They have a different degree of toughness. So if we try to expand the cell before homogenizing it, some parts will expand faster or slower than others. And this might rupture the cell. So we need to just get rid of any inhomogeneities in toughness. This is usually done just by proteolytic digestion. So you might ask yourself now, this all sounds very fantastic. We're doing a lot to the sample here. We're doing the anchoring, the gel polymerization. Now we are homogenizing it. Couldn't this ultimately also distort the sample, damage the sample, get us imaging artifacts? We have, of course, looked into this, and many other groups have done so as well. And it looks as if, at least on the nanoscopic level that we are interested in, distortions are very, very minor and actually not big enough to in any way bother us in the experiments that we are doing. If you want to know more about this, I recommend that you just look into the papers related to this. For now, we have the sample homogenized and we can now finally expand it. And the expansion process is, of course, the most important step of expansion microscopy. It's where the name comes from. And the further you can expand your sample, the better your resolution will become. Because the further you can separate different elements in your sample, the less limited you are by the resolution problem of light. So if we have a fourfold expansion, for example, as in the original publication, we might get to a resolution of 80 nanometer. If we have a tenfold expansion, as in the expansion protocol that I want to show you today, we might get to 20 or 25 nanometers of resolution. But first of all, let's look at how this looks macroscopically. We have the sample here, the gel directly fresh out of homogenization, and now we put water on it. Once, twice, three times, and you see with every single step of water exchange, the sample swells. And here it's a tenfold expansion in each dimension, which ultimately means an increase of volume by a thousandfold. So let's look at what this does. Of course, it will separate the fluorophores. They are now further apart, and we can now in microscopy actually tell them apart. Good, I've told you a lot now about how expansion microscopy came about and about how it works. So let's go to an actual sample now. Let's look at the biology that we can now investigate using expansion microscopy. This, again, is a picture of the synapse which you
touching. They are in perfect alignment, as you can see. They are completely just opposing each other. But they are not actually in interaction with each other. So now we can start to understand what is going on within the synapse or within any other cell type. And this now becomes possible because of this increased expansion factor. And at this point, I would like to tell you a story. The story of how I first used extend expansion microscopy after I got the general protocol to work. Again, what you see behind me, it might not look like it, but this is a synapse. I labeled three very important elements here. In green, you have the synaptic vesicles, which store and release the neurotransmitter. In magenta, you have a protein on the sending surface of the synapse, where the vesicles are getting released. And in yellow, you have a protein on the receiving surface of the synapse. So all very important essential elements to a functioning synapse. And I have been looking at pictures of the synapse, just like this one, for the whole of my PhD, for four years. And I have been trying to study synaptic vesicles and how they behave, how they move around, how they release, how they get recycled. But I have never actually seen one. All that I have seen are these blobby, weird structures of, role, of low resolution. And then I did extend expansion microscopy on this. And what I saw at first got me a little bit concerned because I actually thought something had gone wrong. What I saw was a little granular dotty staining inside the synapse. And I thought maybe the labeling didn't work, maybe polymerization didn't work, maybe something is distorted. But then I actually realized what I'm looking at. And let me show you what it was. This was what I was looking at, a synapse at 25 nanometer resolution, where I can actually now see these little dots, which are all of them synaptic vesicles, these organelles that I've never seen before, despite the fact that I worked for th with them for four years. And now I can finally, for the first time, look at them. This day was so amazing to me. I got my entire lab, anybody that I could find, I dragged them to the microscope and showed them the synaptic vesicles. And I asked them, am I going crazy here? Is this true? But we very quickly figured out that it is true. We are looking at individual vesicles here. So that was fantastic to me. This opened up a whole new world of scientific in discovery. So I really hope that at some point, extend expansion microscopy might do the same for you as well. And now we have this technology. We can now use it to look into the synapse and investigate how it might actually look like. And as you already know, the synapse is much more complex than it is shown here. It's not empty. It's packed with all these proteins. And without this tightly packed structure, so beautifully composed in a very precise manner, none of us would be able to think or to feel or to move around. None of the things that we are doing would be possible without these structures. So now we can take a look and see if we can actually understand how they are working. Again, let's go back to the artist's rendering. Just to remind you, all of these proteins, we know what they are. We know what they are doing, roughly at least. But we don't actually know where they are located. This picture is very beautiful, but it's also with a very high probability wrong. 
everything is just mixed together here, like a stir fry. You take all the ingredients, you throw them in a pan and you mix it, and this is what you get. Now, as I mentioned, that is probably not what is going on in reality. So let's take a look at the reality now. This is a brain slice um, out of the cerebellum of a rat. And we look at this particular region here, before extended expansion and after extended expansion. And you can see the structure still looks pretty much the same. There are no distortions, no ruptures or anything else. And now we can look at a synapse within this region. Again, you have the synaptic vesicles in green, little precisely localized dots. You have in magenta where the vesicles are released and in yellow where the signal from the vesicles is detected. And we can go even deeper now and look at particularly the interface of release of the neurotransmitter and detection of the neurotransmitter. So in all the images that I'm going to show you now, there's always in green the sending part of the neuron and in magenta the receiving part of the neuron. Here are two of these proteins on the receiving and the sending side. You can see they are separated. We have this big gap between the magenta and the green. But they are still aligned in some way. So there must be something that maintains this alignment. And we can look at this at even bigger detail and quantify it a bit more by drawing line scans. These line scans are just literally lines through the picture. So we start by drawing the line through um, this connection here, the connection of the green and the magenta. And first of all, there's of course darkness, which means no signal. Then there's green signal, which means we get a peak. Then there's again darkness, which means we get a valley. And then magenta signal, we get another peak. And this valley is the interesting thing. It means that these two proteins are in alignment, but not interacting. And we can look now at different proteins in the synapse. Again, on the sending part and on the receiving part. And these now, if we draw the line scan again, are much closer together. There's almost no value between them. And this arrangement presumably will have important implications for how the synapse is functioning. Because a protein on that side, very far apart, couldn't interact with a protein on the other side. There must be something between them. And we can now quantify this even further. We can look at the distribution of proteins. They must not always be in the same location. They could be closer or further apart, and there could be variability between this. And we can go and look at several of these proteins at the same time. And as we do so, you see this extremely precise alignment. And this must be important for the functioning of the synapse in some way. Otherwise, it wouldn't go to the bother of establishing and maintaining this very precise alignment. Now, this is very similar, actually, to how a sandwich is built. If you ever build a good sandwich yourself at home, you know that the layering is important. It's important where the tomato or the lettuce or the cheese goes relative to the bread. And the same is true for the synapse. Now, what this layering actually means, we are only at the start of understanding at the moment because only now we have the enabling technology to make us look at these elements at sufficient detail. But I will hope that we are getting there. But expansion microscopy, of course, can do much more. It can do something for you, hopefully. It can be applied to any type of cell. And I will just show you a few examples now. Here we have a tubulin immunostaining. 
Tubulin is just a part of the cytoskeleton, which maintains the shape of the cell, which lets it move around, and which serves also as transport highways within the cell. Now, if we look at one particular region of this tubulin staining, before expansion, we can look at the same one after expansion. And this is not zoomed into the picture. This is not even using a different magnification of the microscope. This is literally just the same objective magnification applied before and after expansion. And what you see is the true physical increase of the sample size. Now we can go and look in more detail. We can zoom through this tubular network at high resolution. And we can see that it's built like a scaffold, almost like the scaffold of a building, which is in the final image here color-coded for the depth of the different elements of the cytoskeleton. Now, this is beautiful. We can now see details that were hidden before. And we can look at this in a little bit more detail. This is, again, tubulin before expansion, and this after expansion. This is, again, the tenfold expansion, which gets you to 20, 25 nanometers of resolution. And you can see now elements that were not visible before. Let's look at the comparison between these two images, before and after expansion. And again, let's draw a line scan. The first line scan is just to show you again the expansion factor. We have before expansion 310 nanometers between these two peaks, and after expansion 3,600 nanometers. And now let's look at a structure that was, before expansion, difficult to actually sort out. This one. You can see before expansion, we just have one peak. It looks like there's just a monorail of tubulin here. However, after expansion, it's suddenly two peaks. So two highways are running parallel to each other here. This is a level of detail that was not visible before because we lacked the resolution. We could not separate these two elements. And another example. This is a staining of something that I'm not immediately going to tell you about what it is because can you tell from just looking at it? I can't. It's just a blob. It's just some sort of structure that is presumably somewhat spherical, but we can't actually tell anything about it. So let's go to higher resolution. This is what you can achieve with STAT and STORM microscopy in um, the most widely available setups. And you can now see it looks a little bit like a donut. So there is a ring around which is, has a certain thickness, and there's a little hole within the structure. So we start to learn more about it. It looks more or less the same with fourfold expansion, but now let's look how it um, will appear in tenfold expansion. And you can see what was a very thick rim before is now actually a very thin rim. It is a sphere with a very large opening inside it. And this, I'm telling you now, is a peroxisome one of the tiny organelles in all of our cells, and we labeled the membrane of this peroxisome, a protein on that membrane. So now we can actually tell the shape of the structure, which we could not do before. And we can draw a line scan again over the rim of the structure and look at the precision with which we can localize now. And as you can see, the line scan here tells us this is about 20 nanometers wide. So this is the kind of precision which we can now achieve with X10 expansion microscopy. And other people have also by now used X10 expansion microscopy to look at their own samples. For example, we can see here a beautiful muscle cell. It is a very regular arrangement of certain structures within the cell, which we can see here. 
And the resolution that we achieve is good enough to actually look at functional states of proteins within these muscle cells. The people who have done these experiments could now tell whether these proteins are phosphorylated, which is important for their functional state, actually. And other people have even gone so far as to correlate live imaging experiments in living mice with expansion microscopy. This is just cells, neurons, synapses lighting up in the living animal. And you can find these same synapses again after extend expansion microscopy. And then you can use extend expansion microscopy to map where the connections on the neurons are actually coming from in the brain. And this tells us a lot about how the brain is ultimately organized and functioning. And with this, I would like to take you back to the beginning, to where I started and to where extend expansion microscopy got me. You can see again how the synapse looked to me for many, many years during my PhD. This is what I had to deal with. And now I have this beautiful image instead. And I hope that you can achieve the same for your samples if you have anything related to cell biology where you would want a better signal, where you would want better resolution. I very much encourage you to look into it and hopefully you will get the same amazing moments as me when I first looked at this picture and got my entire lab and showed it to them. And then we can hopefully all go to our own particular interest, to our own particular cell type and achieve structures, models like this one, but now at much higher detail and with a much higher confidence that they are actually true. Thank you very much. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. This talk was brought to you with support from the National Science Foundation, the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, and the Lasker Foundation.